0: Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Part One, Precision Medicine in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Implications for Molecular Testing and Treatment, is provided by Axis Medical Education and supported by educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Genentech, Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation, and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here's your host, Dr. Robert Macharnik.
1: Hello and welcome to part one of this educational activity entitled Precision Medicine and Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Implications for Molecular Testing and Treatment. I am Dr. Robert Macharnik, Emeritus Professor of Clinical Medicine, and I am joined today by Dr. Hossein Borgai. Professor and Chief of Thoracic Oncology at the Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Here is a disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we may be discussing off-label use of approved agents or agents that are currently in development. Here is our financial disclosure information. Here are the learning objectives for this activity. Today in Part 1 of this activity, we will review and evaluate the most recent data and recommendations and provide expert insights on biomarker testing for genetic alterations in non-small cell lung cancer. We hope that you'll join us for part two, where we will review currently available targeted therapies for the treatment of advanced non-small cell lung cancer, based on the presence of identified mutations and gene arrangements that we will discuss today. Let's start by discussing the importance of and challenges of associated with obtaining adequate tissue samples for biomarker testing in advanced or metastatic non-small cell lung cancer patients. First, Dr. Bourgai, would you review current recommendations concerning which gene mutations, rearrangements, and fusions we should be testing for in our non-small cell lung cancer patients?
2: Um, thank you for inviting me for this program, and thank you for that question. I think the easiest way to answer this particular question is to look at this page from the NCCN guidelines. It is important to realize that the list of alterations, mutations, um, translocations, um, and other uh, genomic alterations are actually increasing. We now have seven to eight different molecular markers that we can target. Uh, There are seven, at least seven FDA approved treatment for patients with various molecular um, alterations, and I think what is important to realize is that we have come to a point where practically every patient with advanced non cell lung cancer, particularly non-squamous histology, should have a broad next-gen sequencing platform uh, done as part of their initial workup. Um, The way I look at this is that this information is as important as having staging information uh, because you want to decide how to best treat this particular patient. Therefore, it is important to have this information. Um, It is also important to realize that doing uh, sort of these one-off testings that we used to do in the past is no longer really feasible because the number of Uh, changes that we're looking for, as you can see on this particular slide from the NCCN guidelines, is increasing. Uh, It is no longer cost effective, and also it is not possible to have adequate tissue to want to do one test at a time. So in order to have tissue stewardship and also in order to have the best treatment option for all of our patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer, I think the the best option now is to perform a comprehensive next-gen sequencing on every patient who walks in through the door. We can debate a little bit about squamous histology. I would say that in my clinic, if I have someone who uh, is a never smoker who has squamous cell histology, I would seriously consider doing all of these testing. And I do, in fact, I think we can discuss the impact of tissue testing and blood testing as part of this workup. And I think that is something that's important to realize. And later on in the program, we will review some of the data. But the bottom line is that if you do not look for these alterations, you're not gonna be able to find the patients and therefore you might not be able to offer the best treatment option to to, to your patients.
1: Knowing what we should be testing for, what is the prevalence of these mutations, rearrangements and fusions in non-small cell lung cancer and the rationale for targeting them in non-small cell lung
2: cancer? Good. So I think um, I've sort of answered a little bit of that, that question that you're asking now. So what is the prevalence of all of this? Um, some of these mutations and some of these alterations are extremely rare, meaning that you can find them in one to 2% of all the patients that you see with the diagnosis of non-small cell uh, lung cancer. I think some of the uh, numbers that you see on slides like this Um, sort of indicate that um, even though the prevalence is low, because we have really effective treatment options in terms of sometimes a simple pill that patients can take, it is important to identify them, and it is important to offer them the right treatment. Some of the uh, highlighted uh, uh, pathways and uh, molecular alterations in this uh, particular slide are there just to indicate to you that even though we're dealing with rare phenomena, for instance, in the, in the uh, setting of a red uh, fusion or some of the end track alterations, you're talking about 1% to 2% of patients who could possibly have this, but we have multiple really effective drugs. Some of these drugs offer intracranial responses, which is amazing, thinking about uh, caring for a patient with non cell lung cancer with brain metastases and how important it is to have the right drug in the right patient because it could have an impact in the overall um, outcome of the care that we deliver. Um, and and the, the alterations that we we're showing on the left-hand side of the uh, slide, EGFR, out. those are obviously the, the, the more well-known one. All the way down to KRS G12C and HER2. These are alterations that we're aware of. We can find them if we do that broad uh, next sequencing, comprehensive genomic analysis. And even though we don't have approved drugs right now for HER2, for instance, or KRS G12C, there are multiple studies looking at, again, what we think to be pretty effective therapies right now. So in another you know few months, hopefully, we'll have effective therapies for these patients. So The key here is to identify these patients and to be able to say um, that you have these alterations identified so that when a drug becomes available, you can offer it to patients who qualify for it. The list is expanding. These are just two examples uh, from early May, just a month ago, uh, where FDA approved uh, drugs for med alterations and for RET alterations. And again, these uh, represent major breakthroughs for management of patients with non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, the, the, I know it's a, it's a repeat of what I have just said, but unless testing is done in every patient who comes in through the door, we are going to miss these patients and we're not going to be able to find them. And yes, you do have to screen a large number of patients to find some of these more rare alterations, mutations, fusions, but it is worth it and it will have an impact on patients' outcome.
1: Dr. Borgai, how can clinicians identify these biomarkers in patients with non-small
2: cell lung cancer? That's a really good question, and it's an important one. Um, there are a number of different pathways that one can take to sort of identify the patients that uh, would qualify uh, for these specific treatments. Um, obviously. Obtaining adequate tissue from somebody who has a, a diagnosis of lung cancer is always difficult unless they have more accessible sites where we can um, safely and easily uh, biopsy them. It is important to have a, a team approach to all of this. Uh, I think it is important for uh, interventional radiologists or whoever does the biopsies at your, at your institution, pulmonary group, if they do a lot of the biopsies, pathologists, Everybody who touches the tissue to be aware of the importance of having enough samples collected and preserved for all the testing that we need to do. Some centers, like uh, my center, were lucky enough that we have an um, in-house comprehensive panel performed on all of our patients. So life is a little bit easier for someone like me or my colleagues at Ox Chase because we have an in-house panel. Sometimes you have to obtain the tissue and send it out. Uh, So it's important to know where you're sending and what it is that you're asking for. Um, So you want to use a laboratory that's um, uh, properly accredited and also properly trained. Um, You don't want the tissue to be wasted. Uh, to be aware of the methodologies used, uh, I think it's important if you simply send something for mutational analysis, you're going to miss all the fusions and all the potentially good drugs that we have under that category. So it is important to communicate with the laboratory, perhaps with your pathologist, to say, hey, this is the list of alterations that we absolutely have to have to take care of a patient. Um, so understanding what it is that you want to do with the tissue, I think it's important. Um the uh, uh, the pathologists need to be involved here because uh, sometimes the pathologists have a tendency to do a lot of uh, uh, IHCs, immunohistochemistry tests, to identify subtypes of um, lung cancer. And that's appropriate in some cases, but in some cases, maybe one or two tests would be enough. That's where you've... Uh, preserve the rest of the tissue for all the uh, molecular and uh, uh, other testing that's required to determine treatment options for the patient. So I think there is a lot for the medical oncologist now to be aware of, Um, but I think again, because it is a medical oncologist who's in charge of the care of the patients, uh, it is also appropriate for the medical oncologist to have that open interaction with everybody who touches the tissue again, to ensure that the appropriate care is delivered. Um, What are some of the um, methods that we use? We talked a lot about next-gen sequencing. Um, That's probably one of the more common um, ways of doing things now because it is more cost-effective. It requires less tissue. Uh, PCR is used from time to time. Sanger sequencing is a little bit, um, I would say, uh, outdated in the sense that you know, we don't want to do single gene alterations. We want to be able to do a more comprehensive, more in-depth analysis uh, of, uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of all the tissue that we have available to us. Um, there are some alterations that we still use, uh, FISH fluorescence and cytohybridization to identify them. So, again, you have to notify your pathologist and the lab that you work with what it is that you're looking for. Of course, we still do a lot of IHCs, again, some for diagnosis, but uh, certain biomarkers like PDL1, we use IHC. It's, uh, uh, it's cheaper, it's quicker, uh, it is something that can be incorporated a lot more easily into the a workup of a tumor sample that, that's delivered to the pathology department. It's not as complicated as a molecular testing requiring specialized laboratories, but it has limited use right now. So, I mean, PDL one is basically the one that we use. Perhaps you can use uh, IHC for uh, ALK uh, identification, but uh, beyond that, I think you still rely on uh, some of the next-gen sequencing to find all the, uh, all the mutations that we are um, uh, basically looking for for our patients. So there's more information on the slide uh, for your um, information. Um, so how is it uh, uh, when you read a piece of literature or a manuscript, you might see any number of techniques used, and some of them again are shown on this particular slide. Um, I think just the way to summarize it is that some of these tests are used to identify, again, single alterations. For instance, if you use the, the, the first one, TheraScreen EGFR, and you're only looking for the EGFR test. If you use a, a Vendetta ALK um, uh, assay, you're looking specifically uh, for ALK. Um, if you use a more broad sort of NGS, you can get All of the potential mutations that could be there i'm talking about egfr mutations kras or any number of other uh mutations that might be detected so again um using pdl1 um uh, with uh a specific um, uh, company, for instance, will give you just a pdl one and you need that to um, tailor your treatment for the particular patient, but that doesn't give you the EGFR, the ALK, the BRAF, um, uh, the HER2, or all the other alterations that could be in the tumor. Again, knowing what tests you are requesting is important. So to some extent, some of what we're showing in this slide is a, um, a little bit maybe not exactly outdated, but not quite as useful as we want it to be uh, given the present status of uh, uh, you know having to find seven or different eight different markers. So what about this idea of the liquid biopsy, so basically using plasma? Um, I think it's a great idea. It is potentially the future of doing all of these analyses. Why? because we all realize it is difficult to obtain adequate tissue. Again, if you're dealing with a patient with lung cancer and uh, the only sites of disease are lungs and lymph nodes, it is not easy to have access to a big chunk of tissue, so to speak, to do all the testing that you need to do. Tissue is probably more specific. I would still say that it is, quote unquote, the gold standard. Uh, But I think the plasma testing can augment what you do with tissue, and there's data for that. And in certain cases where you just cannot get adequate tissue, plasma testing can provide a lot of useful information. Yes, there is a false negative test, uh, meaning that the um, sensitivity of the test is a little bit low. So if your plasma testing is completely negative, you cannot be 100% sure that that particular patient does not have any mutations. You still need tissue to confirm it. But in cases where um, you simply cannot have access to adequate tissue, uh, sending plasma for testing can actually solve a lot of problems. What if you do find an EGFR like we do all the time? Uh, then you're on your way. The patient can get the appropriate treatment and, and you can proceed from there. Uh, so I think... Plasma testing can augment tissue. There are uh, a number of reports now saying that, uh, you know, tissue can have a false negative test result. Uh, Plasma can have false negative. But if you put the two of them together, um, you can actually identify more patients with these genomic alterations. I understand that cost becomes a little issue, and everybody talks about how expensive some of these tests are, but um, when you think about the care of a patient with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer and how much more we can offer, the cost really becomes a little bit less important, and identifying patients who can get these directed therapies becomes even more uh, important as far as I'm concerned, and again, I know that uh, there's a lot of debate about that. So. Um, there is a convenience for plasma testing, uh, but it's less sensitive. Uh, there is uh, a little bit more difficulty in obtaining tissue, uh, but it's worth the effort at the time of initial diagnosis and perhaps even at the time of progression as we get to talk about uh, certain scenarios. But the bottom line is that um, I think we have to do every uh, we have to take every effort possible to identify these patients. Um, so, We think these actionable alterations and mutations can have an impact on how we care for these patients. Uh, The question then it becomes, if you're relying on tissue, uh, the other uh, problem that usually arises is that, you know, it takes a long time to get the results back. And again, I think that's that's a valid criticism of some of the testing. But... Uh, You know, molecular testing has been around for a long time. There are a number of um, national and international guidelines that sort of provide benchmarks for when we should be able to get the molecular results. And I think if you work with a laboratory, if you work with your pathology department, if this is really an interdisciplinary approach, a lot of these things can be streamlined. For instance, you know, ten working days to get the results uh, uh, from the moment the sample is sent is uh, a very reasonable turnaround time. Sometimes it takes that long to get all the staging uh, material done for or studies done for a patient. Uh, so I think it's important to keep that uh, keep that in mind. Um, there are instances where you know, by the time you uh, obtain adequate tissue. Uh, send it to your pathologist, from your pathologist, uh, sending it out, from sending it out, delivering to the appropriate institution where they or um, facility where they do the testing to get the results might be um, uh, three to four weeks. And I think that obviously is not acceptable. So you need to come up with a process where, things are streamlined to the to the extent that your system allows it uh, to let you get these results within 10, 12 days uh, so that, again, the patient care is not um, delayed, uh, but at the same time, you get the information that, uh, that you require. And look, uh, I see patients uh, in the clinic, perhaps not as much as some of you in the clinic at this point, but I still see patients two days a week. I understand that um, it's anxiety-inducing for a patient and for a physician to say, you have, uh, you know, potentially stage four or non-sponsored lung cancer, but I'm not going to treat you because I'm waiting for more information. And I can understand how a patient might come back and say, well, I'm not willing to wait. I need to get started. And I think that's where um, having an open dialogue with a patient and, and making sure all the uh, information is uh, communicated with the patient and family is important. Uh, continue to follow the patient closely, but uh, get the data uh, in order to be able to deliver that personalized level of care that I think a patient requires.
1: Dr. Borgai, what methodologies and assays do you use most often in your practice? Have you ever had a patient with insufficient tissue to perform appropriate molecular analysis? Is this an instance where you would rely on plasma cell-free circulating tumor DNA testing?
2: Right. So um, have I had patients where we've had inadequate tissue? Of course, it happens. Um, It's a clinical practice. Um, So if I really get a sense that a patient is uh, in trouble, meaning that the disease is progressing rapidly, um, I still try to obtain a biopsy as fast as I can. But then in scenarios like that, I think uh, I am more inclined to start Um, just a a platinum doublet chemotherapy uh, just to stabilize uh, everything and then wait for the molecular testing to come. But I do obtain that second biopsy. I am now incorporating liquid biopsy into my practice a lot more. Uh, I have to admit, I am a uh, a recent converter to this. Um, I always believe that tissue should be uh, uh, sort of uh, the uh, sample sent for molecular testing. But the improvement in the liquid biopsy panels, uh, some of the fantastic data that has come out recently, has really uh, pointed to the fact that for some patients, uh, you know, uh, getting that uh, liquid panel sent is really, really important. The results come back a little bit faster. And again, if it's that 30% false negative, when everything is negative, I still have my tissue and the tissue is being sent out or being worked out and sending it. So I obtained the molecular testing results at, at all costs.
1: Thank you for that insight. Now let's turn to guidelines for molecular testing. The College of American Pathologists, International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, and Association for Molecular Pathology last released guidelines in 2018. Would you briefly review these recommendations
2: What you see on your screen is uh, uh, the uh, American College of Pathologists' recommendation for molecular testing. Uh, Some of these have been around for many, many years. Uh, And again, it emphasizes what we have discussed uh, up to now. It is important to have the testing. It is important to identify the patients because then you can direct your therapy uh, a a lot more accurately than it would be uh, otherwise, meaning the days that We would just give chemotherapy to everybody who walked in through the door, or even at this point, chemo plus immunotherapy are gone. We have to identify the right patients afford the right treatment, and these guidelines actually help. And I think the other thing that the guidelines emphasize is this close collaboration between the pathologist, the treating physicians, and the person who obtains the biopsies. Again, to make sure that there is some degree of tissue stewardship, that everybody's on the same page as to what is being requested uh, from the pathologist or from the molecular pathologist, or if you're sending it out from the molecular lab where you're sending all of this. Um, and again, these are uh, in this slide a summary of uh, what we have talked about for the most part. Um, clinical practice is fast moving. The data that's coming in is fast moving. The data is really, really good for these uh, uh, for this targeted therapies. Uh, and again, I think we owe it to the patients and to ourselves to do the best job that we can to care for the patients who, you know, are facing incurable diseases. I would also add that we talk a lot about the metastatic setting and stage four, but With some of the recent data coming out, I would not be surprised if we see molecular testing moving even uh, to the front line in the adjuvant setting, honestly. uh, You are aware of some of the data presented at um, this year's ASCO, virtual meeting nonetheless, really good information was presented. And I think some of the uh, studies that have been presented recently could have an impact on how we care for these patients, even in the adjuvant setting. So now, molecular testing is going to move even uh, uh, to an to earlier stage of treatment uh, and therefore being aware of all of these uh, uh, points that we have discussed and all the guidelines that um, uh, have been discussed and shown is really important.
1: We will discuss targeted therapies in more depth in part two of this activity, but for now, would you briefly review available targeted therapies for treatment of advanced or metastatic non-small cell lung cancer? Based upon biomarker analysis results,
2: right. For uh, in the in the second part of the program, I hope to get a chance to cover some of the data uh, for um, the specific alterations and drugs that you see. Uh, again, EGFR has been around for a long time. We know a lot about some of the drugs that are available in this setting. Um, we know about T790M, less of a problem now because we're using Osimartinib in the frontline setting. Uh, drugs for ALK, ROS1, BRAF, uh, N-TRAC, MET, and RET are all the additions uh, that uh, have come uh, in a more recent time. The, the MET and RET are brand new, as we talked about in the beginning of this program. Uh, so again, being familiar with the drugs, knowing what the side effects are, knowing what the efficacies are, and then finding these patients are going to be really important. So I look forward to having a discussion about the data with all of you.
1: And what about immunotherapy? What can you tell us about PDL one testing and currently available immunotherapies?
2: Yeah, so immunotherapy um, is, you know... Uh, It is truly uh, a revolution in the case of uh, uh, treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. I think it's been the case uh, for a number of other malignancies, such as bladder and melanoma. But in the world of lung cancer, this was revolutionary. I think for patients who do not have uh, the specific targets that we have been referring to, immunotherapy can offer potentially um, long-term benefits. Uh, I have to admit that it does appear that only about uh, uh, 15-20% of patients who are really, really benefiting from immunotherapy, but even those who don't have long-term benefit do draw some short-term benefit from the addition of immunotherapy to their standard treatment. The um, biomarker that we've selected as a result of all the studies is PDL1, and that is an IHC uh, based assay. There are many different um, IHC based assays for detecting PDL1 based on the clinical development of all the PD1 or uh, PDL1 inhibitors that we have in the clinical practice. Um, but the bottom line is that uh, even though we don't consider PDL1 to be a perfect biomarker, um, it is a biomarker that uh, the data supports its use as a, an indicator of how a patient might do uh, in response to immunotherapy, meaning that at least the way I look at the data, the higher the level of pd one expression in a tumor, the higher the likelihood of a patient responding to anti-PD-1 or PDL one therapy. So I think it is a useful information to have I use the information in deciding whether I want to use immunotherapy alone or the immunotherapy plus chemotherapy in a patient population that I deal with, and I hope I get an opportunity to discuss that with you. Uh, but nonetheless, it has uh, become uh, one of the markers that um, uh, we utilize when we are looking into either clinical trial participation for our patients or standard of care treatment. So it is an important biomarker to keep in mind, and again, um, a lot of labs have developed different techniques and pathways to, uh, to do the testing and uh, offer it to the clinicians.
1: Thank you, Dr. Borgai. As you've just indicated, there are many gene alterations in non-small cell lung cancer that inform the selection of therapy. This makes the testing of lung cancer specimens vitally important. For the last part of our discussion today, would you talk a little bit about treatment planning for patients with actionable mutations. Would you also explain how you inform patients and their caregivers about what biomarker results mean and the importance of a multidisciplinary team in patient management?
2: Right, so I think um, lung cancer has become um, really a multidisciplinary um uh, disease sites in terms of care of the patients. even in the metastatic setting, we use um, a lot of the resources that probably up to now we have not been using. So again, close collaborations with the pathologists, uh, really engaging them, uh, it's really important. Of course, radiologists have been a big part of it. Uh, pulmonary group, especially if they're involved in helping us, uh, you know, manage um, specific toxicities like pneumonitis or obtain additional tissue. So the multidisciplinary aspect of uh, care for patients with non-sponsored lung cancer has become even more important. Um, there is a lot of information to uh, discuss with the patient at the time of initial diagnosis. We just covered um, a whole uh, set of molecular tests that we have to obtain. Uh, I think it is important to communicate the importance of these with a patient uh, and with patient caregivers. Um, We know that it is overwhelming to get a diagnosis of lung cancer, especially metastatic lung cancer. Um, So being able to discuss the nuances of care as it uh, happens now. Uh, with one or two family members, I think becomes really, really important. It's always better to have, you know, more than one pair of uh, eyes and ears to hear and see what it is that we're seeing in the office, because it is a lot of information for patients to digest. Uh, therefore, that help, I think it's, uh, it's uh, welcome. Um, and I think helping patients in a, in a shared decision-making process to arrive at a treatment that uh, uh, patients are comfortable with is also important. Um, I don't think we can forget that quality of life is really really important to a lot of our patients. Uh, some of the side effects that we talk about in terms of clinical trials and you know I'm guilty of that you know looking at grade one two toxicities and saying oh this drug is uh, well tolerated well you know it's one thing to be the patient who gets that and has grade 2 toxicities quite another one to be the physician who just prescribed the medicine so I think discussing some of these uh, uh, side effects, which you know, sometimes can be chronic for the life of using the drug, is important. Uh, So, again, having that shared decision-making process and getting the patient involved and the family members involved is really, really important in in helping us understand what it is that the patients have in mind and what their goals are, and then uh, try to guide the patients and provide all the information that we can and and help them make the right uh, treatment decision by, again, offering uh, the the correct uh, treatment option. So I think all of this goes back to the fact that if you don't have all the information it becomes difficult to offer the best treatment option for the particular patient. And as far as I'm concerned, having all the information requires the molecular testing the way we've talked about it. Again, I'm not naive. I, I, I understand how hard it is sometimes to get the molecular testing. Believe me, I go through it also. But it is important, and I think we need to do what we can Uh, to provide the information and to get what we need to come up with a better recommendation for our patients.
1: Finally, would you provide us with some key takeaways from today's presentation and biomarker testing in non-small cell lung cancer?
2: So takeaways, um, I think takeaway number one, every patient with a diagnosis of advanced non-small cell lung cancer, I would say regardless of histology, deserves to have a next-gen sequencing comprehensive panel performed on their tumors in order to identify potential uh, targetable lesions for which we have really good drugs already available, or we have really good effective clinical trials, or I shouldn't say effective, but we have really good clinical trials where the possibility of exploring a new drug is there. Uh, Key point number two this is multidisciplinary care. Uh, You have to be in touch with your pathologist. You have to know your molecular lab. You have to know what it is that you're asking and what you want with the precious tissue that you have. Uh, Takeaway number three for me would be um, to get a really close look at the uh, uh, so-called liquid biopsy panels. I think, um, again, in in, uh, many cases, uh, getting uh, two tubes of blood and sending it for an analysis is much, much easier than uh, wanting to repeat the biopsy or getting more tissue. Uh, but keep in mind that if, if the blood-based assays do not give you an answer, so completely negative, you still have to do the tissue to make sure that you haven't missed anything. Uh, so I think uh, those are the major takeaways that I hope you um, uh, take with you out of this discussion. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Borgai, for this excellent review. And thank you to our audience for your participation in this activity.
0: This activity was provided in partnership with Access Medical Education. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.